Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello, and welcome to this EM360 podcast. I'm Scott Taylor, the Data Whisperer, and I'm delighted to be your host today. I'm the principal consultant at MetaMeta Consulting, and we help organizations tell their data story by reinforcing the strategic value of proper data management. Now, in today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Martin Burr, CEO and founder of Tyke, and we'll be discussing using API management to drive digital transformation and continuity. Hello, Martin. How are you doing today? Hi. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a good day. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Glad to have you as well. So for some background, why don't you walk us through a little bit of the history of systems integrations and how we ended up with APIs? Sure. So systems integrations is one of the oldest problems in IT. Probably the reason IT was actually first invented. Ultimately, the problem is how do I get one system to talk to another system? And every organization has this, and it's had it since the beginning of the, you know, the electronic signal. So when, when we look at systems integrations, we're, you know, in the more modern context, we are looking at how do I get a database to talk to a service or a computer, to, a service to talk to another service or just a client to talk to a server. There's um, all kinds of different problems. And ultimately, actually, in a large organization, it's when you have, for example, a customer relationship management system, a warehouse stocking system, um, a website, an order tracking system, and maybe even uh, some kind of user support system. All of those systems have their own you know, data um, silos. The, all, all, all the customer information lives in, in, in its own space there. And companies spend a lot of time and effort trying to make all of that data talk to, it, to each other uh, and to make it relevant so I can have a full view of the customer. Uh, from top to bottom. Um, so when somebody, you know, orders an item through the website, the correct request is sent to the warehouse to make sure it's in stock. And then the CRM system picks up the user journey, makes sure that the user record gets created, et cetera, et cetera. And when these problems first sort of came about, uh, a pattern emerged, which was called the, um, the service-orientated architecture pattern, where essentially you would... Um, create this an imaginary well a very imaginatively named thing called a data bus where or an event bus where you each system would post messages saying this is here's my here's an order for 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 a widget for example would come from the website and go onto this data bus the data bus would then be in charge of taking that message to any systems that are listening and those systems then in turn would react in some way so the warehouse would then maybe come back with a message saying halt that's not in that that, that doesn't exist you can't complete this order and the CRM system might take that data and store it and then come back with some kind of user ID that the entire supply chain can use um, so that's a data integration example and um, service-oriented architecture using these event buses was is sort of the, the way to go in enterprise integration uh, patterns. Now, there's, this is a very old system. It's been around since forever, and it hasn't really ever gone away. We still kind of use the same principles, but the technologies have moved on. So we started off with service-oriented architecture using um, message queues and message buses uh, like you know Kafka and um, RabbitMQ and things like that are popular favorites nowadays. Uh, and we've moved from that now into a slightly different scenario where we, because we have the web and its related transport, the you know hypertext transport protocol, transfer protocol, um, it's very easy for folks to 
instead of having to use a custom piece of software that that, that handles messaging between systems to just standardize on HTTP and just use that as a, as a service layer to do uh, you know um, RPC calls. Uh, RPC is um, remote procedure calls. Basically saying system A can ask system B to do something and system B does it and then returns the information just instead of that happening on a CPU, it's happening across the network from one machine to another. And that, you know, while an SOA pattern with a service bus lets you do that, um, using HTTP means you can have point to point connections and it's much faster to iterate. So people started building web services. And these web services started off with um, some various formats. So RPC was one of the first, XML RPC it was called. Um, and that evolved into a standard called SOAP. I cannot remember what SOAP actually stands for, apart from that I want to wash my mouth out every single time I talk about it. Um, it was uh, a protocol that was created to allow systems to talk to each other in a really elegant way. It was a great idea. Like the, the vision was fantastic. You, you go in and you say, I want to speak to this computer over there. So you go to the computer and you say, I, how do I speak to you? You ask, it, uh, you ask for its um, service definition. And it sends back a file which you can dump into your, uh, into your programming environment. And your programming environment automatically creates a client that can talk to this machine completely magically uh, under the hood. And then you just program with this client. And then all of a sudden, you're interacting with this third-party service. Sounds like some kind of panacea for, for systems integration. Unfortunately, this um, standard, the SOAP standard and, and, and specification was built by committee, a very large committee of lots of vested interests. Obviously, everybody had their own implementation, and that meant it fractured quite heavily. So all of a sudden, systems that were written by large company A, which said they were SOAP compatible, would not talk to clients built by company B because they, the SOAP client they generated was incompatible with the, with the service definition because of small minor issues. And that's, that's sort of where, the, and we're still having these problems today. Uh, the, the next sort of bit on the top of that is, so if you think of it this way, as a, as a user, that's a really painful journey. As a developer, it's really painful. And it makes the overall experience in it, of iterating over your integration problem much harder than it should be. So when uh, the, the, there was this sort of quiet revolution where people said, get rid of RPC, let's get rid of SOAP, let's use the RESTful uh, state transfer protocol, which is not even a protocol. It's just a set of agreements uh, where we say, instead of having to create a protocol that we write down in a spec, we just say, why don't we just use what's there in HTTP already? So there's methods in the existing transfer protocol, like get, post, put, etc., And we use those to then build out our services so that we don't have to agree on anything because it's already agreed and all the clients are already built and the entire web is built off of this protocol. So we don't need to worry about interoperability problems. And that gained traction really, really quickly. And the modern web service or API as you know it is essentially that. It's just an HTTP call. It's basically a web call. It's like a browser talking to a, to a server and requesting a website. Could be defined as an API call. And as this proliferates, we get to the point of saying, well, now we have this fantastic way of very quickly creating services because everybody understands how HTTP works. Uh, and it's very easy to, 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 to digest the, the, the mental model for building services this way for, for, for an engineering team. Uh, the next problem you get, though, is everybody builds them slightly differently. Everybody follows their own sort of rules. There's very few specifications on how the best way to do this or what the pragmatic way to go about this is. And there, there have been attempts to codify 
methodologies. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, you end up getting a lot of point-to-point -point systems. Uh, and those point-to-point -point systems then don't necessarily work with other systems. And they, because they don't follow any standards, they don't, um, they're not easy or secure to change. Um, so while it's fast to build, it's dirty to maintain. So it was a big trade-off there. Um, and there's lots of, there's loads, don't get me wrong, this is, there's loads of ways of mitigating that with, you know, strict client types or strict typing and, and, and schema management, things like that, like that, like the open API specification tries to normalize API design principles when it comes to RESTful services. By the way, REST is representational, representational state transfer. So just in case you wanted to know why I'm talking about RESTful services. Um, so we're now at the RESTful stage of uh, uh, service you know, design. And when it came to integrating systems now, we had things, instead of having an event bus, you'd have webhooks. So a system would just make a web call to another system. And you'd have these point-to-point -point connections that would then make up your larger system. You'd probably still have an event bus somewhere in that system, but it wouldn't be the be-all and end-all of your integration journey. Um, but what became apparent then is those very large applications that had many, many web services were, of course, hard to maintain. They began, they're either called monoliths. You know, large code bases with lots and lots of dependencies uh, and lots of teams working on the same thing. Google famously has a the entire Google code base is a single code repository, um, but they split it out into microservices. And this is the thing. So what happened after this is, okay, the monolith is awful. We don't want to maintain this thing. It's awful to upgrade. It's awful to, 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 to change and to do blue-green deployments and things like that. So um, they, uh, the, the, well, the minds that be came up with this wonderful term called microservices where you take your, the thing that you want to integrate, which might be a very large system that does a lot of stuff, and you break that very large system down into much smaller discrete units. Um, and those independent units run independently from each other. So they become applications or services on their own, but they're very, very small, hence micro. And then you network those up using web calls. So everything sits on the network. So your application is now heavily distributed. And it'll obviously, it, it, there's loads of benefits to that stuff. It, it, you know, it survives downtime. It survives uh, systems breaking. You, it survives even network partitions and things like that if you've properly set up your microservice architecture. Of course, the amount of complexity to manage all that stuff has now skyrocketed. So as you can see, we've gone from a problem that is hard to solve to various attempts of standardizing on, on, on a solution to finding a solution that wasn't a standard but more of a loose agreement and then using that as the baseline. And since then, now RESTful APIs have found their limits. We, we know exactly what they're good for and what they're not good for. They're very, very good for um, speaking to external clients. So if you're a consumer of an API, of a service, and you're trying to integrate your third-party system. So let's say I'm a, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a Twitter client developer, but I'm not Twitter, then the API I want to interact with there probably will be a RESTful one because it's very easy to get started with. However, if I'm Twitter and I'm writing a whole bunch of services in my, in my ecosystem, in my actual backend, the integration between those will probably use something much stricter. So they might use some SOA practice with an event bus or they might use something like a binary protocol, which are these sort of new, the new way of doing uh, remote procedure calls where the client and the server are both very statically typed and they're managed very carefully in terms of what they're allowed to do and what they're allowed to say to each other. 
so that they move in lockstep with one another. And this is, it's a much more formal process, but for systems engineering, it means your integrations are very, very secure and they, that sort of sloppiness that REST um, introduces is gone, but your complexity goes up again. So that's sort of a, a very, very rapid run through of, of you know, what happened with, with, with you know, integration problems and API services. And then along came Facebook and thought, we have, and you have to imagine this, I don't know if you've ever done it, but if you go to, to facebook.com and you open up your, your, your timeline, if you look at all of the, the requests your browser makes to get fetch all the data to fill up your timeline, there's like 20 or 30 or 40 in there. Well, like there used to be. And what's happened is they thought, well, that's really wasteful, especially on a mobile device where you have limited data connectivity, you have limited bandwidth, at least you used to. We're talking when this was developed. So they came up with this idea called GraphQL, which is, um, well, if you know databases, you'll probably have at some point run into SQL, which is a query language. You write, you write a question in a specific format, you send it to the database, and the database answers you in a very structured way. And it has a very normalized syntax. You know, even though there are different types of SQL databases, the syntax is usually very similar. Now, GraphQL is kind of like an SQL query for your microservices. So even though you have, you know, 50 different or 100 different services in the back end that are all providing single bits of data, instead of querying them all independently to get that data, you query a GraphQL server, the GraphQL server goes, oh, to get this set of data for your query, I need to talk to these five or six services. And it handles all of that for you, then repackages it all and gets sent it back to you uh, as the end user. And that means you only have one API call to do, and that API call only brings you the data you need, which means a lot of power moves from the, um, the service developer. They can just develop the services they see fit. Uh, um, it moves then down to the client developer who can then say, I only need certain pieces of information. And the GraphQL server mediates between the two. That's a really interesting way to, uh, uh, to address an integration problem. Because all of a sudden you're saying, well, we have this massively federated service ecosystem, um, but we know we need to, we still, there's a sort of one-to-many relationship when it comes to the, the clients asking for data from them. And we don't really want them to have full access to, well, we don't really want them to make a thousand queries. We want them to make one. Um, so GraphQL is a really good mediator for that. Um, and th that's sort of where we are now. I think we sort of now reached the, the, the edgiest part of the remote procedure call ecosystem. So there you go. I think that that is a positive history. I'm sure some net academics will probably say, this is all wrong. Maybe my history is slightly off, but nonetheless, it is largely in line <laughs> where we are now with integration. Sally Martin, that, 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 that was tremendous. No, <laughs> thank you for that answer. We're, we're going to try it again. I'm going to hit record <laughs> and see how it, <laughs> just kidding. And, and I agree with you with some of the terminology, you know, a business person hears soap and rest and they think it's a bath and a nap. So really being able to distill this down to a business perspective and thinking about, you know, your, your company, how does Tyke play in all this? And how do you explain it to a business person? Yeah, sure. So you're, 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 you're a business person and your very smart engineers have built some kind of platform that's really valuable. In fact, they probably built a whole bunch of services that keep your company ticking over. You know, when I say, 
that one system that keeps checking on your warehouse stock and then fulfills new orders from your suppliers when stock gets low so you can like do some just-in-time uh, supply chain management. Um, that Those integration points are obviously super critical. You can't change them. You wouldn't go about and go out and say, oh, I'm just going to, you know, change how this works. It'll break how your company makes money. Um, and, but however, there's intrinsic value in that. For example, now let's say you introduce a third party vendor or you do some kind of affiliate program where, you know, uh, somebody OEMs your product. They still, they need to be able to order the, the, the systems too. And they need to understand what the warehouse stock is. Um, and in order to sort of trigger supply chain advancements, um, through their own process. Now, they would ideally directly hook into your supply chain system or to that service that you've got, you know, where you have the warehouse talking to your, your uh, fulfillment system. They, they should probably talk to the same system. Now, to do that, though, you have to probably change the system because whatever you built is internal to your company. It's proprietary. It's got all kinds of secure stuff in it. 90% of the time, anything that's built in-house will be built to slightly less perfect standards than you would if you're making something outward facing. Um, so your quality assurance is probably a bit lower and you might be leaking secure data. So in order to, to, to get the value from this internal process that you're, that's really valuable to the company, in order to take that value and actually make more out of it by externalizing it, you need a way to secure it, to mediate it without changing it. And that's usually where a company like Tight comes in, uh, at least in the most traditional sense, somebody will say, Okay, so here's our back office fulfillment system or our credit card validation system or whatever it might be, and our partner needs access to it. We can't give them secure credentials into our into our network, but we want to make revenue off of it because we can charge them per call or per fulfillment or whatever. Uh, and at that point, you would bring in what we what, what is called in the industry some kind of API management platform. So something that sits between your services in the outside world and then mediates the, um, the interface between those two. And it's not so much about the actual technology in place. It's about saying, you know, in order to, to order something from my company, fill out the form this way. And then when it comes into the procurement department, they look at that form, they fill in the remaining details that are, you know, maybe proprietary to the company or something that the customer might not know. Add that to the little notes field at the bottom saying for internal use only, and then send it on. Um, and an API gateway, is essentially at its at its simplest point um, does something like that, and it secures that transaction to make sure that the person that's coming in and put, placing that order is the person they say they are, uh, and it saves you then having to roll your own security, which is the most dangerous thing any company can do. So that's sort of the very high level of API economy thinking, where you say, how can I monetize internal back office processes uh, to add value to my partners to my customers, et cetera, and create more of a platform or an ecosystem out of systems I've already invested in. Um, you know, these will be a sunk cost that are, you know, powering your business, but you can probably make some money off them. And you kind of touched on this. I mean, if you can elaborate on a little bit more, the differences between sort of a best in class solution and some of these homegrown solutions, pluses and minuses to both, but love your perspective on that. Yeah. So we, <laughs> So there's, there's, there's sort of two rules when it comes to, 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 to building stuff, and it's never roll your own authentication and never roll your own cryptography, mainly because they're both difficult, and it's very easy to get it wrong, and when you get it wrong, it's, it's, it's a catastrophic mistake. Um, it's really business-critical stuff. And 
when you meet engineering teams, they sometimes come along and they go, well, they, there's this very famous saying, it's called the not invented here syndrome, where engineering teams will go, no, 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 we need full control over this, so we'll build it ourselves. And there's a lot of sunk investment that goes into building these ecosystems and these, in, these, these interfaces um, with your own teams. But you know, the problem is you then have to maintain that system. When there's any change, you have to divert resource from something that may, might be adding value to your company to something that is just maintaining access to something that adds value to your company. So think about just productive time of your engineers who are very expensive. Do you want them you know, changing a tire or do you want them building a new engine? That's a good way to think about it. It's just every driver should know how to change a tire, but everybody doesn't need to know how to rebuild the engine. I love that analogy. So that's that would be um, that that's the issue with with rolling your own, and you're sort of taking the the value away from your own. You're you're, you're cutting your nose off to spite your face, sort of thing, by doing it that way. Um, whereas if you buy a best in class solution, and you don't have to buy it. I mean, there's open source ones. We're an open source one, where you can get a lot of functionality that does the basics for free. Um, and you bring that in instead, and at least it's taken care of. And in our case, if it's open source, you know it's it, it's auditable. So there's an external. Uh, it's been viewed and probably frittered over by a bunch of hackers and other customers that have worried about whether or not it's secure. So you do get that network effect of security that comes from just saying, you know, let me buy something that has that you know where they have lots of really good customers. So you know, somebody in the banking sector or somebody in the fintech sector who have all kinds of regulated environments where they get audited and then that passes if they if they're using your system then then passively uh they they their audit goes through as a value proposition to to the to the best in class system you're using you don't have to do the audit so there's there's some real benefits there to um to getting a best in class solution where you know it's being used by other larger entities and there's the strategic benefit at least what I've seen, which is most of these companies aren't in the software system creation business. What's the core of that company? You know, if you make widgets, as you mentioned, then your job is your company's focused on making better widgets for your customer base, not the systems that power your widget distribution protocol, whatever you want to call it. And it's a real strategic imperative to stay focused on your core competencies. You see so many companies kind of wander off into, well, we think we can do it. Let's give it a try. And why? You know, you got to ask that big question, why? So one of our team recently mentioned a fantastic quote, which is, you know, when, you know I'm paraphrasing, but you know, when, a, when software has gone stale or has reached its peak, when they add messaging to it, and eventually all systems get a messaging system. So it's that whole like, oh, I know what we should do. We should let our users chat oh, to each okay. other. And as soon as that starts happening, uh, you know that you've reached peak software um, because they've got nothing else to add. Just that, just just chat. So it's a, it's an interesting. It's, it's one of those things. Is yeah, you're, it's exactly like you say. You don't you don't. Well, while most companies are transitioning to being more digital and more software savvy. Uh, and there is um, there, there's there's a some really good articles uh, and, and 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 presentations by Ben Evans who talks about software eating the world and how almost any company now is a software company, even whether they like it or not. You know, if you consume a SaaS service, uh, sorry, a, a software software as a service service, then um, you are slowly but surely becoming a software company because you need to you're relying on that software to work. Nowadays, especially with the uh, the market environment we're in now, where 
people have to do a lot more stuff remotely. Um, software becomes more and more of an interconnector between people. So while that widget company might be producing widgets, software is really at the heart of how they can, they can compete these days. Um, but you're right, they shouldn't be focusing on writing software. Well, not software to, to protect their services. They should be writing better software to sell widgets. Yeah, and even if that, right, can they find a partner to help them do that? Because I always challenge yeah. those, you know, all due respect exactly. to those big thinkers out there who say, you know, every company's a software company, every company's a data <laughs> company. You know, no, it's not. They do what they do. So even if they use software and data, doesn't mean that they become that kind of company. And I think that kind of positioning and chatter distracts from the core competency of the at least their messaging. But no, I agree. I, I'm, I'm with you. It, it, it's all about a. It's a degree of um, the degree of uh, of extremes, really. I think essentially what what I think what most people are saying is that you can't ignore the fact that there's software and that software is slowly creeping into your company. Um, but yeah, they're not necessarily a software company. It's uh, and th and that's different than you've heard it right. Every company is an internet company. Every company is a BI company. Every <laughs> company is going to be an AI company. It's like just take it down about a hundred notches, will you? That's no, I make widgets. And I'm happy to use AI and BI and software and the internet to do that, but don't change the nature of my business. So that's my kind of feeling around that. Um, you know, you talked a lot you know, in your in your preamble about the history there, about systems talking to each other. What about the data part of it? So that example you gave of a siloed CRM system talking to a you know an ordering system and they have the a customer entity, a widget entity. What are your thoughts and experience around making sure that data itself talks to each other? Well, data normalization is a huge problem. Um, and there's so many ways of approaching it now. Uh, you know, the thing is, as you, you, the problem is, if you buy lots of best in class solutions, you still want them all to talk to each other. But at some point, you still have to write the, the kludge that sits between them. You have to write that, that glue code. You have to write the, 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 the conversion systems to make it all work. Um, and data interoper interoperability is in and of itself quite difficult unless you standardize its source. So one of the, one of the cooler things that is, uh, that's coming out nowadays and you're seeing more and more of, especially in BI actually, is, um, uh, and big data, is, is this idea of just using events, so event sourcing. So everything becomes an event. If somebody makes an order, instead of it being an order recorded as a, as a, as a, as a form or as a structured piece of data, it's an event saying, here's, a, here's, a, uh, here's an event saying, this is the event name, here's the payload, and this is what, it, what a kind of a type for it, uh, and ha then has a unified ID. And because it's an event, you can create this graph of time, a time series graph saying, if you, if you filter it just on one customer ID, you can see all of the events that led up to, let's say, something arriving at their door. Uh, and that's really powerful stuff. Now I'm, we're not an event data company, so I'm, I'm sort of out of my <laughs> out of my wheelhouse here. But those event APIs, so these systems that um, instead of a instead of a service just taking data, moving it somewhere, shoving it in a database, it actually actively converts it into something that is more streamlined or standardized for your internal ecosystem, and then puts that into your systems so that it can transfer, you know, move through your service network uh, and remain. Uh, understandable by everybody. Um, that's that that's sort of a, a trend we're seeing a little bit more of these days. Well, they say every company is going to be an event company. So are they? You've, you've <laughs> yes, you've backed right into that. 
any customer stories you want to share around some of the things you've seen at your customer base or client base in terms of the transformation you've been able to help enable? Well, most of our customers, we 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 find we add um, a, a level of security, uh, obviously. So it's just a case of them wanting to, uh, you know, so large banking customers, for example, we have, we have a, a very large bank on the books and they, every single time you go and request a credit card, um, you know, or you, you, you request a loan application, it actually goes through one of our systems and it gets validated before it enters that, that ecosystem. Um, you know, for example, if you're just like just this month, actually, um, earlier this month, we ran payroll for thousands of companies in the UK through one of our customers. Obviously, we didn't do it, but they're using our services and our services mediate all of the transactions that their customers are doing. So and they're, a pay, they're, they're a finance company. So all of their they were running payroll all of this month at the beginning of this month. And um, yeah, it was all facilitated by by our gateways. And that's the kind of um, capability you want to be able to enable for these customers, especially in something like fintech, where it's moving. And it's, it's actually quite lovely how it's moving this way, where in, in banking and finance, the, the transaction, uh, the, the monetary, monetary transactions are becoming more and more you know, digitally contract-based. So you can, you can now transfer money in a couple of hours between accounts within you know, less than a day between different countries. And all of that is facilitated by these services that are being created by these new fintech startups. But those services themselves, while they're talking to the banks and all that stuff, that's all proprietary, that's all secure. At some point, they need to talk to the client services. They, they need the clients and the output. So that the shiny user end, that's where we come in. Uh, and we've, we've facilitated, facilitated quite a few um, cool things like that. Before the pandemic, we were helping a very large bed bank uh, I don't know if you know what a bed bank is, but if you've ever gone to Trivago or Hotels.com or anything like that, and you want to book a hotel somewhere, um, it, those companies don't actually have any stock. That stock all comes from a bed bank. And it's basically these systems that, in, that talk to all the different hotel systems and aggregate all of the available costs and then send that out to these, to these front ends like Trivago. So it's a bank um, of beds. It's beds yeah. stand for something. No, it's literally okay, a, right. a bed bank. You know? <laughs> it's uh, it's amazing. It's uh, you wouldn't think about it that way, but it's it's true. They're just huge aggregators. And yeah, before the travel sector collapsed, obviously they they were running something like fifty thousand requests a day or something. Uh, sorry, a second uh, for for various information about about hotels and things like that. So we facilitate all that stuff, and it's it's interesting because the analogy I like to give folks about what we do is. We are, um, we're the plumbing in your house, right? So, you know, you've, 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 you've bought your new house, you've got your toilet, you've got your sink, you've got all this cool, you know, your beautiful kitchen, and we're the ones who, who, who don't just provide the pipe, but we'll provide you with the, 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 the joints, the, 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 the valves, the pressure management systems, all that kind of stuff, that, all the good stuff that makes sure you have good shower pressure uh, in every room and more than two people can take a shower and you can flush the toilet at the same time without somebody shrieking. Um, now, when you, when you install something like that, what you really don't want to have to do is change it, right? Because it's in the walls. You don't want to have to rip up your floors and rip out your walls to change all the pipes. Um, so we are, we are very much a core infrastructure provider and an enabler of things that are much more enjoyable than what we do. <laughs> so, yeah. Great analogy, but, you know, what house doesn't have plumbing? And... 
back to your roll your own. You don't want to be, maybe you'll fix a washer or a leaky <laughs> faucet, but you should not be installing this stuff no. yourself behind the drywall. For exactly. Sure. Keep away. So we have a couple minutes left here, but I, I, I love asking this to, especially to founders about the name of their company. Where does Tyke come from? Does it stand for something? Is it initials? Is it where, what's the story behind that? It's, well, it's, it's a bit of a weird convoluted one, but, um, a long time ago, I before I started Tyke, I had a side business, a side hustle called, which was a, a load testing service. So basically a system that would <clears throat> make sure your website stands up against lots of traffic. Uh, so let's say you do a really good deal or your a post goes viral. You don't necessarily want your, your site being hugged to death by TechCrunch or Stack Overflow or whatever. Um, so I built the system. I thought, oh, I'll monetize that. Uh, and then I rebuilt this system because that's what engineers do who have not, invent, not invented here syndrome. Um, and I built it service-oriented architecture first. So it was all service-based. Uh, oh, it's so cool. And I thought, I don't want to write authentication. I'm going to get an API gateway. And uh, when I looked around, that didn't exist. There was no real open source API gateway. There, there was one. Um, but it was a huge monolithic application. It was actually much larger than the thing I was building. So I thought, hmm. That sort of, the, 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 the scale there doesn't really make sense. So I thought, like any normal engineer would, I know what I'll do, I'll roll my own. Um, so that's where the software came from. That started off the actual API gateway. And then when I was looking for a name for it, well, I thought, well, in my head, I thought, well, maybe one day this thing will get so big, I'll be selling like hardware components. This was back in the day when Google was still selling the Google uh, appliance, which was a server you could buy and plug into your data center and you know, it was this really cool thing. So it was branded Google. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we had like a little tyke and a big tyke, you know, T-Y-K-E. So I started looking for domain names and then there was this opportunity for a three-letter domain name, top level. I thought, well, I can't really say no to that. Boom, tyke.io was bought. And that was the name of the company. That was the name of the software. Just opportunistic, um, play on word. Opportunistic, great little story there. That's great. So Martin, this, is, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like more information on what we've discussed, head over to tyke.io, that's T-Y-K dot I-O. And this is Scott Taylor, the Data Whisperer, for the folks at EM360 and the folks at Tyke. Thanks again for listening.